You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and you're very welcome to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Thanks so much for tuning in and this evening we have to start the show off by offering our congratulations to John Whelan Butchers in Clonmel County Tipperary for their beef dripping being awarded the Great Taste Supreme Champion 2015 award last week. You might remember that John Farrand from the Guild of Fine Food was on the show a few weeks ago talking about the Great Taste Awards so it was just super to hear that an Irish product had won that much coveted overall award, which one judge described as a distilled moment of perfect roast beef, and another one said it took them back to their childhood. Back to tonight and what's coming up. Colin Greensmith, development chef with Palace Foods, will be in studio to talk about the Christmas cake. Don't hate me, please, but December is not that far away. And if you're into making Christmas cakes, now is the time to start, I'm told. Focus Ireland's Alison Cullen will be revealing details about the launch of the charity's new Taste of Home range of jams and chutneys. I have a report from a recent visit to Raceview Mill in Bershian, County Antrim, and Fiona Uyama, the Irish Queen of Japanese food will be on the phone to talk about her new cookbook that's being launched this Thursday. If you'd like to get in touch with the show and we always love to hear from our listeners please do drop me an email s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So if you're wondering if you misheard me I have to clarify that no you did not and yes I did say the C word however I think it's allowed whenever it comes to Christmas cake and if you're planning on begging one for the first time this year or if you do it every year just for yourself or for lots of people then my next guest development chef from Palace Foods is in studio and I'm sure that Colin Greensmith is going to have some great advice and tips Bon Appetit Yummy Grubs up Delicious Mmm Colin, great to have you in the studio this evening. Thank you very much, Sharon. And people may hate us, but we're going to talk about Christmas cake. Yeah, it's never too early. We start talking about Christmas cake in May, believe it or not. So really? This is quite late. Yeah, absolutely. That's very early now. It is. But you might be talking about it in May, but you're maybe not making it in May. No, but we were tasting last year's Christmas cakes that have been left over. Yeah. And assessing product in May for okay. the coming season. So yeah, it's actually a little treat. You'd be surprised, but it's lovely to have Christmas cake in May because you're away from it and you've forgotten about it and it's been sitting in parchment paper and it's gorgeous. Yeah. So yeah, it's one of our little treats and we by November, December we're kinda of sick of it, but in May we love getting our Christmas cakes. And it it doesn't it keeps for a long time. Keeps for a long time. I mean If it's if it's looked after properly. If it's minded and if it's looked after and kept in the in the proper environment. I mean Christmas cake was actually originally it was a, an Easter time treat so it was so when people would start preparing their uh, Christmas mince pies they used to say keep the ingredients and make a cake and that would be, would have been an Easter dish but over time it evolved to being a Christmas dish so yeah it, it definitely keeps and it's it's the old traditional way of keeping your fruit and using your fruit from the previous seasons and is there a basic recipe that everybody more or less sticks to or are there lots of variations there's lots of variations and lots of different types of Christmas cake I suppose across the the British Isles all the Christmas cakes are a variation on a team. They're either porter or beer-based. A Scottish Christmas cake would be whiskey-based. Irish uh, Christmas cakes tend to use whiskey or brandy. Um, but then you've got panettones in Italy, which are completely different. They're almost like a fruit bread. Um, a German Christmas cake would be completely different. There's even a Japanese Christmas cake, which is a, a sponge, a white sponge with icing on it. So lots of different types, but generally the, the traditional British and Irish Christmas cake are variations on a team. And do you have a recipe that you would personally use yourself each year? I have a recipe that I picked up a lot of years ago in the mustard seed, which actually uses cider to make the initial cake instead of um, instead of the, the brandy and whiskey. And we infuse the, the heavier alcohol over the weeks. So generally we'd make it six, eight weeks in advance with cider and then infuse it with the harder alcohol over time. So if somebody is starting to make it now, what are the first steps? What do they need to do first? Well, first steps are obviously gathering your ingredients. So some people like to use margarine, others like butter. I'm a, a butter man myself. I think everybody's moving more towards the, yeah, the butter, I though. Yeah, th- I think so. I think there's a nicer flavour. And with a lot of smaller creameries as well, now you're getting more traditional butter. So you're getting away from the you know the standard um, generic butter that you find in the shelves. So you could have a, a Glenoyland butter or quinoa butter, which would have a, a little bit of salt in it. And it would be a little bit saltier than, your, than the butter we might be used to. And even in sweet things and in desserts, a little bit of salt is, is a great help as well. So it's, it's really plain flour, um, butter, sugar, and then your, your dried fruit mixes along with the alcohol then as well. And can you vary the dried fruit mix? Can you put apricots, sultanas? Like what is the difference between sultanas and raisins and currants? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's generally it's it's different fruits and different drying methods, to be honest with you. But I'd be more of a sultana's man myself, um, it purely because of the size and because they take to the alcohol more when you soak them as well. In They're advance. plumper. They're plumper and they just feel a bit more luxurious as well when, you, when you're using them. But I mean, it, it can be anything. I mean, you've got people, we've got uh, somebody who works with us who used to work in the Middle East and they put dates into their into their fruit cakes. So, you know, there's a lot of variations. It's pretty wide and pretty varied. But generally your raisins, your your cherries, um, the, the standard supermarket, you can buy a mix now, uh, a fruit cake mix, and that, that's pretty standard. But you can be as adventurous or as tame as you like with your, with your ingredients. Okay. So you mix those all up together? Mix them all up together. Um, what I personally like to do is soak the alcohol for, you know, overnight, maybe 8, 10 hours in advance of making the cake. So, or sorry, soak the fruit and alcohol 8, 10 hours in advance of making the cake. So I'd leave those sitting in a bowl overnight. Um, cream your sugar, your margarine, mix it with your flour, and then add in your, your fruit and your eggs to bind. Um, sometimes as well I like to use citrus fruits so you know oranges there's always a, a a Christmas tradition of oranges being a fruit that were around the house so I think using orange peel and orange zest and even lemon lemon peel and lemon zest into your cake as well just to give it a little bit of a zing but okay. the orange would be a, a regular in, in, in my Christmas cakes and once you have the cake batter ready is there anything you should do with it or is it straight into the tin and get it into the oven as soon as well I actually like to warm the tin before I put in oh, the, okay. I've never the mix heard as that well before. yeah warm the tin a little bit of butter on the outside and the other thing I do is I line it with, grease, with greaseproof paper and pour the mix in then and then it's, it's into the oven um, generally about two and a half to three hours to, to bake a Christmas cake so it's the old traditional method for checking then is just skewering the cake and making sure that the skewer comes out clean if you opened the oven in the middle of it, is there any danger of it sinking or having an adverse effect on it? Opening it, not so much. It's it's how you close the oven, I suppose, and how you treat it. Some ovens can be temperamental. You know, you might have to bang an oven door on an older oven. Something like that would affect your cake mm. and would cause a little bit of sinkage. Like, obviously, it's best to leave it closed for maybe over two hours before you start checking your cake. But generally, if you're gentle with the oven door, it's not too bad as long as you're swift. But, I mean, if you're opening the oven door and taking the cake out to check it and popping it back in, that's going to affect your cake. Okay. And it does take a long time to cook because it is quite a dense cake. It's incredibly dense. And one of the things you don't want is that, you know, you have a cake that seems to be cooked on the outside. And when you cut into it, you've got this heavy doughy mix sitting in the middle that hasn't cooked through properly Mm. and hasn't aerated. So, yeah, it's one that takes a lot of time and plenty of patience it's quite an easy recipe it's a, it's a very easy thing to make but you have to be patient while it's in the oven and just let the cake do what it has to do while it's baking how soon after it comes out of the oven should you get it out of the tin do you need to let it cool for a little bit or again is it is it important to get it out when it's quite warm I would actually let it sit in the cake on, or in the tin until it's relatively cool I wouldn't be in any rush to get it out of the tin I know the tin is, is insulating it in effect and, and keeping the heat inside but I'm never in a rush to get it out mm-hmm. just let it cool you know sometimes you can leave it overnight before you take it out it just makes it a little bit easier and you know your cake is stable then as well but one of the things I do when I, when I do remove it from the tin is I leave that paper around it that it's been baked in and I leave the, the, the same film around it and you know once it's out of the tin I wrap it in in greaseproof paper Okay and it has to be stored in an airtight container airtight container cool dry place but that's it I suppose the airtight container bit isn't as important as you might think um, because it's going to be it's going to be taken off and taken out of the airtight mm-hmm. container on a regular basis anyway you know in the six weeks leading up to when you're actually going to consume the cake there's going to be a fair bit of wrapping and unwrapping and, and popping it in and popping it out for adding alcohol and making sure that the cake is nice and moist um, cling film is often a good one as well um, especially if the cake if there's a little bit of residual heat in the cake when you do take it out of the tin if you're under pressure wrapping it in cling film Greaseproof paper first, then followed by cling film, can keep the moisture in and keep the cake nice and soft and you don't get that that hard crust that forms mm-hmm. around the outside of the cake. Okay, yeah, I've had that on a few cakes. It's good yeah. to know how, why that is happening. That's a small tip. Yeah. And you use the skewer then to to kind of make little holes, a very small skewer to make holes and then put the, the alcohol into it. The alcohol it. in afterwards, exactly. On a regular basis, just use a very thin skewer, pierce the, the cake, and pour your alcohol over it as much or as little as you like. And again, going back to the variations on the alcohol, I know whiskey and brandy are the traditional ones, but Scots like Drambuie. We have a Scottish colleague who's a particular fondness for Drambuie in all of his cooking, but he does Christmas cake, Christmas cake with Drambuie, and it's, it's lovely. Okay. And again, you're bringing in the citrus, the citrus flavours and the citrus alcohols into it. And is it necessary to put alcohol into it? Like could you, if you weren't an alcohol person, could you put orange juice or apple juice into it? Yeah, if you don't like the flavour, you can. Personally... I think that 
that bit of heat that comes from the Christmas cake with the alcohol is what makes it. Mm-hmm. Um, you could flavour it with other things. Um, on a personal note, I like the whiskey and the brandy going into okay. it. And I suppose I might be a bit of a traditionalist in that way, for I do have my variations, but I do like the strong spirits going into it. But absolutely, I mean, there's no reason why you can't flavour it with something non-alcoholic as well. At what stage then is it ready for icing? Uh, once you have it pretty much ready to go with the alcohol and you've given it a nice few weeks of resting, you can ice it quite late. Um, with traditional marzipan icing over the top I'm never in a particular rush to get it iced I think the you know the icing if it's left on for too long as well it can be a little bit temperamental and you know cracks can start to appear so you know a week 10 days out I think is plenty of time for me personally to be putting on the icing Okay and have you any good icing recipes? I think the very very simple ones I mean when we were studying in college um, there was a book that we always go back to called Practical Cookery and it's just the basics 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 I mean there's a saying that that you know we've all heard keep it simple stupid mm-hmm. and I think that's that's words to live by when you're doing the traditional recipes so it's a very simple marzipan recipe for, for covering it and then your, your traditional icing for the top of it your traditional royal icing for the top of it so the marzipan is you know your caster sugar your ground almond um, a free range egg white you can add in a little bit of almond extract or again zest of a citrus fruit into it for a little twist but generally just keep it simple and again the royal icing it's, it's icing sugar egg whites lemon juice and glycerin and it's, it's as simple as that you know again if you want to tie the extra egg white you can to get it to get it stiffer and, and more crunchy um, I know like when we were kids it was always a case of getting the crunchy icing from the top of the cake it was a prized a prized part of the cake so yeah if you can get your icing nice and nice and crisp outside the marzipan if you're not a marzipan lover is there any alternative to using marzipan or is it just a case of cut it off around the cake and just leave it to one side no I mean there there are other soft icings that you can use and there, there are plenty of other soft icing recipes I suppose marzipan is just tr- the, traditional the traditional one, one. but some people do find almond quite strong mm. and I suppose in general cooking I'd be of that opinion that almond can be quite strong and it can leave an aftertaste and it can tend to repeat on people as well but I, it's just with the, with the Christmas cake I think almond goes very well with it I would imagine that it is something that a lot of people would have left over at Christmas because there is so much other food going on but it's not the worst thing to have left over because as you said before it it keeps for so long. It's a great treat you know I mean if you go for afternoon teas to to any hotels or restaurants you'll often get a piece of fruitcake anyway so you know if if there's some Christmas cake sitting in the back of the larder and as I said come April come May it's a lovely little treat to have and I know you know in some places it's not just a, a sweet thing or it's not just treated as something to have with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee you can have it with some Winsleydale cheese or some cheddar as well later on in the year it's, it's, uh, it's a very old way of eating Christmas cake but it's an alternative use for it and some people would use it to make like a bread and butter pudding or fry it and do different things with it absolutely bread and butter pudding with it is a great one but again there's I mean there's a tradition of, of people keeping a tear of their wedding cake for christings and things like that so you know you're, it's a very similar thing with Christmas cake it's a traditional fruit cake it will last forever and a day once it's treated properly well, funny you should say that now because I'm married ten years next year, and I have that that um, cake that was kept for the christening, and it was pulled out at two christenings. Yeah, but it was never, never cut. It was never cut, and of course, it's sitting in um, an airtight container in a in a dry, cool place. And I often look at it thinking, okay, what am I going to do with this now? Twenty fifth wedding anniversary, <laughs> Sharon, just keep it for another few years. <laughs> and poison himself and everybody else (laughs) I might just do that now Colin well that's all great advice and thanks very much for coming in to to share it with us this evening I hope it's been useful to the listeners my pleasure cheers chin chin salut schleinte Thanks again to Colin and if you have any tips when it comes to baking the Christmas cake please email the details to me s.noonan at live.ie and I'll be sure to pass them on to the listeners. Still to come tonight I have a report from a recent visit to Raceview Mill in Brasheen County Antrim and Fiona Uyama, the Irish Queen of Japanese food, will be on the phone to talk about her new cookbook that's being launched this Thursday. But before that it is time to turn our attention to the telephone and Alison Cullen from Homeless Charity Focus Ireland is on the line to tell us more about an exciting new range of products that were recently launched onto the market. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Alison, Focus Ireland have launched a new range of jams and chutneys called Taste of Home. How did this come about? Myself and Liz Farrell took part in Food Academy, which uh, is a run in conjunction with Bordbia and Super Value. Uh, Focus Ireland is a 
prevention and uh, homeless charity and we would work with people who are um, at risk of homelessness or uh, are, who are experiencing homelessness. We saw potential uh, in the Taste of Home and developing a small business uh, under the guise of a, a social enterprise and we just saw that there was potential in making a quality product um, and using some of our internal resources because we have uh, a really uh, uh, well-established coffee shop here in Houston Street and Temple Bar where we're actually making the products and we just thought there was real potential for customers to get involved and to gain some uh, proper mentored work experience. So you have a number of people that come to you for assistance. They are either are homeless or they're at risk of being... That's correct, yeah. we I work here in uh, Houston Street in Temple Bar and we have a coffee shop which is uh, going the last 30 years and we have a very busy drop-in advice centre. And so people can come in and use the service for, obviously, for getting advice and information around housing. But we also have a very busy coffee shop where people can come in and get a dinner um, and get like a really good home cooked meal, um, and they pay for it uh, because we feel that this gives them it gives empowers them, and it gives them the option. Uh, you know, they can choose to come in and actually pay for the food, and get a really good home cooked meal, um, plus also take advantage of the services that are available here. And the taste of home range then that has been developed by customers and staff, you work together and it has been very strategic. It has been an extremely strategic approach, in fact, because you did devise a business plan initially. Yeah, I mean, what we thought was we were playing around with the idea because, as I said, Liz and myself would do training with our preparation for education, training and employment, which is our education program. And what was happening was people would take part in the food and cookery skills. Then if they were interested, they'd go on and do primary food hygiene, which myself and Liz taught. And then if they wanted to uh, continue on and get some actual mentor work experience, they could do so in the coffee shop, which a couple of people did, and it worked out really well. But that's where we saw the gap. We saw that there was nothing else for them when they finished that. So we felt we had the skills and the uh, opportunity to develop something. So that's where Taste of Home pretty much began. So then we began to explore the ideas of setting up, and we looked at something like jams and chutneys, which are a low-risk product, simple um, to, to make, and we could maintain a standard there. So that's pretty much how it started out. Uh, and it was, like I say, it was an idea and then it developed. We went on and we did the food academy. So we got everything in place that we needed to in order to get into retail. We were successful with that, which was a great achievement because there was an awful lot of work involved in it. As you said, the business plan, the you know, is it actually feasible? Will we make uh, some money out of it? And then also will we have a good customer involvement that they are getting some real value you know, whether that's uh, experience or developing their confidence and getting the real sense of working in a proper kitchen. Well, you say there about whenever you were doing the business plan that one of the questions you asked was, will this make money? And have you got a target in mind? Is there a specific amount that you are hoping to raise on an annual basis? We're still not there, Sharon, to be honest, but we are, we're, we're only a couple of months into it. So we're now, as with any business, you know, it takes nearly two years to make any money. So we are, we've just gotten some feedback from Super Value, so we are really analysing that and seeing where we are at with that with regard to that. And hopefully over the next couple of months, we'll have a much better idea. But at the moment, for every jar that we sell, there's 89 cents um, out of every euro going into our services. Okay, which, which is fantastic. That's a substantial amount of money. Yeah. You said, you mentioned uh, Super Value there, and it is yeah. stocked, the products are stocked by 19 Super Value stores in Dublin, and you're obviously hoping to roll that out nationwide. But yeah. let's talk specifically about the Taste of Home range and what the products are, because there is the tomato relish in there, and everybody knows and loves tomato relish. But I, I feel you've some very innovative, unusual flavours there. We do, because we felt, right, yes, there's a good story here, but we needed to be able to back it up with a good product. So we did a lot of research and looking at what was out there. So we came up with a couple of new ones. So there is tomato relish, because we felt, right, that's a good one. To, it's a fairly standard one. We also have a chutney, which is a pear and walnut chutney, which is actually our best seller. It's absolutely delicious with cheese or, you know, with cold meats or anything like that. Again, the, it's just a really unusual uh, combination, but it really works. And as I say, a great seller. And then we went with two jams. So we went with a strawberry and vanilla jam, a little something a little 
little bit different uh, with the strawberry. And then we have a jumbleberry, which is, as, as any time we're out doing tastings, it's, oh, what's that? So it's basically a jumble of berries. So we have a little play on the name. And again, that would be with pear and walnut, the jumbleberry would be our next bestseller. Okay, and your personal favourite, what would it be? Oh, definitely the pear and walnut. I've oh, been yeah, known yeah. To sit down with a jar of it. <laughs> yeah, I think that now that would be one that I, if I had to try one first, that would be the yeah. first one I would yeah. definitely go for as well. So if people want to find out more, there's it's also available in, um, in Malahide and in... Douglas Village Shopping Centre in Cork that's in the Focus Ireland Beloved stores Yeah it is and it's selling very well in both of those stores so we're there uh, in, in both the Beloved stores and then we're available around uh, the 19 Super Values and we really do hope to extend that out uh, according to, to, to what we're able, you know we have to be careful not to overstretch ourselves either but uh, yes they're available there and hopefully over the Christmas time now we'll be able to sell out of our head office as well and we will have um, some, some available there. Fantastic. For dropping in. Well, it sounds like a, a lovely range of products. I wish you all the very best with it. Thank you very and much. if people want to find out more, I suppose the best place for them to go is the focusireland.ie website. Yes, that would be, and they'll okay. get any information about all of our services and taste at home. Great. Thanks so much for talking to me tonight, Alison. Okay, thanks a lot, Sharon. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard some great Christmas cake making tips earlier from Palace Foods' Colin Greensmith and just before the break, Alison Cullen from Focus Ireland provided details about the charities, new jams and chutneys in their Taste of Home range, so be sure to keep an eye out for those. Never fear if you've missed some of the show as it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, Fiona Uyama, the Irish Queen of Japanese food, will be on the phone to talk about her new cookbook that's being launched this Thursday. But next, it is time to hear some interviews from my recent visit to Raceview Mill in Brasheen, County Antrim, where a fabulous food and craft market is held every month. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Don, you run the market here at Raceview Mill in Brasheen, County Antrim, and it is, it's is—it's a fantastic site. Thank you very much. Um, we basically have bringing the mill back into use. It had kind of gone derelict and was fallen into ruins, so we're trying to bring it back for people to use and to get local food suppliers and arts and crafts and back into the community. Once a month you run the market and it is a very diverse market. There's lots of stallholders here. Once a month um, and then every Saturday and Sunday in December. Um, it is, it's a lovely mix of kind of local produce, crafts, arts, food, potato, everything from your potatoes to a piece of art on your wall. You have some units as well. Are they for like start-up businesses? We have, um, we have little units. Um, they are from everything from start-up businesses to what we call bedroom businesses to people that are ongoing. And it's the same philosophy the market it's little craft traders we have everything from furniture upcyclers to deli olive producers um, to vets to a pet boutique so lovely mix of arts and crafts and we have two galleries as well on site you bought the facility about a year ago and whenever you were buying it what did you have in your head what was your vision Madness would be the vision. Um, it was, as I say, it had been a, a mill and then it had been used for construction and had fallen, um, it had went into repossession. So when we bought it, we just, it came with a demolition order to knock down and we thought we can't do this, we can't lose all this heritage. We want to bring something that has arts and crafts and life and music and bring it all together. So madness and insanity, but it's working well and it's lovely to see people and life and kids running about a place that had always has always supported the community for 200 years. It's now back and there's people in it again. Well, it is wonderful now. It's great to see it. And you have a huge crowd here today. How do you market it and let people know that you're here? Our Facebook site, um, Raceview Mill Brashane Facebook site is where everything is posted and a lot of our traders then post on Twitter. So we're very social media and we don't have a big marketing budget. So that's really how we push it and promote it just in the area. And word of mouth is a great thing as well. well. Good luck with it. And I'm looking forward to talking to some of the traders now. Thank you very much. Linda, tell me how you got into making handmade sweets. 
Really, it's something I've been making for years for my friends and family. They absolutely loved them. I was in a position to do something different. I thought, yeah, I'm going to make sweets. I'm going to make them different. The market's a bit flooded with um, fudge and what have you. Not to take away from fudge because it's gorgeous. But I don't like fudge. <laughs> I like sweets. So I decided to make the sweets. The, the market being that they are uh, they're natural. They're on completely natural. Uh, no artificial additives or any flavourings and that seems to be has what has caught uh, people's attention that they are natural. People would recognise these as boiled sweets, they describe them as boiled sweets but that, is that anything to do with the making of them? Certainly the process of producing them is sugar and water and a few other things boiled together but what I do then is instead of uh, leaving it at the boiled process, once I pour them out I then let them cool and I pull them and pulling them introduces millions and millions of little air bubbles which gives a completely different feel in the mouth when you're finally finished. It's not that very hard, slippery, boiled sweet. It's a, a more melt-in-the-mouth type thing. They're hard, but they sort of dissolve, if you like. Slightly fizzy in the mouth. They're, they're different. Cold sweets are different than boiled sweets. Tell me about the different flavours that you have because there's lots of flavours here I've never seen before in sweets like the Cosmopolitan and the Mojito. There's no alcohol in them, is there? <laughs> there's no alcohol in them. Though in all of the uh, cocktail-inspired ones, um, there would be uh, alcohol extracts that are derived from gin, brandy, whiskey, uh, rum, that sort of thing. Although, no, there is no alcohol in them. They are just inspired by popular cocktails. So we have the likes of Pina Colada, Seabreeze, Mojito, Cosmopolitan that take the, um, the fruit element, if you like, of cocktails and just put them into a sweet. So they are, uh, they're very popular, they're very zingy and fresh. They're lovely. Which is the most popular flavour? Most popular flavour, gosh. Do you know, I could tell you the most popular colour. Anything red, doesn't matter what I put in it. If it's red, it'll sell. Uh, at the moment, today, my most popular one would be Mojito and I've got Green Apple and Spearmint. They seem to be very, very, very popular today. In any given day, I couldn't tell you what the most popular is. I can narrow it down to the likes of uh, Cherry Berry, Raspberry Daiquiri, Mango Orange and Gin. Always a big favourite, especially with women. I don't know why, but it's my favourite, so... <laughs> Well, you're here at the market in Rasheen and County Antrim, and where else can people buy them? At the moment, uh, with being a new startup company, I'm trying to get into various retail sectors, uh, delicatessens and what have you. So I'm having conversations with various delicatessens at the moment. Couldn't possibly say where they're going. Uh, the Gobbins Visitor Centre line in McGee that has just opened this week are carrying a full range of my sweets, which is lovely because I'm based two miles from the Gobbins in Whitehead. Uh, so that's where they are at the moment. I'll, I'll be at the Lamas Fair. I'm always at Raceview Markets, fourth Saturday of the month. Um, I'm at various markets roundabout. Best thing, check my Facebook page and I'll always say where I'm going to be. Now, you obviously have great plans for the business because you have invested substantially in machinery to make the labour side of it a bit easier. Yes, that's correct. I mean, at the moment, I'm hand-producing these from my own domestic kitchen, all certified and all that, but there's a limitation of what you can produce from your own domestic kitchen, especially when you've got family and what have you. I am moving into a small uh, professional kitchen, and I'll have some equipment. Now, they'll still be handmade. The equipment just allows me to hand-make more. That's really all it is. I'm not, making, I'm not buying any equipment that will uh, remove the handmade element from it. I'll just be able to produce, instead of one batch being 20 bags, one batch could be 60 bags. And that makes a big difference as, as the demand increases. And economies of scale also, it makes it more cost effective to make. That's exactly it. Economy of scale is a big, big factor because it, 60 bags won't take three times more than 20 bags. It'll take much the same length of time. It's just I, I can get the wee bit more um, time uh, to produce more and more and more sweets. So it's always better. Listen, all the best with it. I've had some of the Cosmopolitan there and they are absolutely delicious. Very Moorish. They are indeed. I, uh, I have all my little sample bags out and that's all I can do not to stretch over and keep sampling them. So uh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed them. Well, great to talk to you. And just before we go, tell the listeners what your web address is so they can find out more information. We are at www.seasugar.co.uk. Best place to find me is Facebook or Twitter. Just look for Seasugar. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Linda. Thank you. Pat, tell me about your award-winning Long Meadow Cider. Done very well. Uh, we only started out there a year and a half ago. Last year, we got a gold star for uh, on a medium cider. 
2014. This year we entered both products and we got a gold star for each product this year. And it's went down very well. That's the Great Taste Awards. The great Taste Awards, yes. And you were at Taste of Cavan recently and you got on well there yes, as well. Taste of Cavan, we, we lifted the trophy in Cavan uh, town uh, that weekend for the Bravages uh, for our Blossom Bust. It, uh, it won the Taste Awards for it, so it did. Well, you're an Armagh, a county Armagh company, That's and right. Armagh is known as the Orchard County for good reason. So presumably your apples are sourced very close to home. Oh, they are indeed. We grew all the apples on our own home farm, so we do. And we've been growing apples just outside the edge of Ported Iron for over 50 years. So we have... And what were you doing with them before you started making cider? Well, a good majority of the apples, there's 30 acres in the home farm, but we also take another 110. So there's 140 acres in total. We grow a lot of apples for Magners. And also we supply the, what do you call, the diced uh, processing market too. Okay. And you have two different ciders. Tell me about them. We have what three, we have three, three here at the moment. We have a medium cider. We have more Bramley apple added to it. Uh, some more sharper cider, nice and crisp. Then we have our blossom burst. We add a lot of fruit juice to it. So it's a more smoother cider, but bit sweeter. Then this is our new one we have launched this year, only about a month ago. It's an oak aged cider. It has been stored in the oak barns for over a year and a half. So it's a real dry cider. It's going down very well for a person that has a dry palate, likes it. Is it widely available throughout Ireland? Yes, we now have it into over 200 outlets over Northern Ireland. So it's going down very well. And if people want to find out more, where's the best place for them to go? We, well, there's new stock of this going online now very shortly and they'll be able to go onto our webpage and they'll be able to see whereabouts it is in Northern Ireland. And what's your web address? Longmeadowsider.com Great to talk to you, Pat. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Well, whenever I came out to Brasheen today, Mervyn, the last thing I was expecting was to meet somebody with bacon that has Limerick connections. Yes, um, I used to do a lot of work for uh, Denonia Foods in Limerick. We just cook a lot of bacon for them back whenever the... Uh, when the breakfast rolls were big. When Pat when Short has his song out. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's back then. And uh, since that then, the, uh, with the decline of the building industry and all, uh, that market sort of dried up again, you know. Now, you have bacon here. It's award-winning. You have a great taste award. Tell me about it. It's bacon as in rashers. As in rashers, yeah. We farm uh, pigs in the outskirts of Oma. And... Uh, we uh, seen that a lot of the bacon and a lot of housewives were complaining that when they were frying a lot of the bacons there came a lot of uh, residue and one thing and another from them. So uh, we took it on board to just to go back to kind of cure and manufacture the bacon the way it was done years ago with uh, by dry curing and not adding any any extra water or or uh, liquid to the the product, because know. a lot of people would complain that the water content can be quite high in things like ham and, and bacon or rashers. Yeah, and a lot of them it's um, up to 25% um, added and uh, I say we don't add any don't add any from that and uh, there seems to be I found going around the most of the majority of the foodie type markets and that type of place that a lot of the people are uh, becoming more and more aware of this and uh, that they want less chemicals, less salts, less stuff in their food and that's why that seems to be growing in popularity, you know. So you're breeding and rearing your own pigs they in Oma? Rear pigs out in Oma, yeah. So how long from a piglet to it's on my plate? Um, within six months. Usually around five months from the barn. Well, I see himself has a couple of packets of it there in his shopping bag, so I look forward to having it for the breakfast tomorrow. No no problem. (laughs) Thanks for talking to me. You know where to find me if we're looking for more. James, New Harvest Distillery, where are you based? Uh, We're actually moving to uh, Raceview Mill here in the next uh, month or so. So, uh, in Brashane. That's Brashane County Antrim. It is, is, yeah. And you make whiskey? We do, yeah. We make uh, apple pie moonshine which is uh, uh, local apples from Armagh, spices, and then the clear spirit we distill. And what got you into making whiskey? Um, well, I've done it. I did it in the U.S. for a while, and I just decided to see whether or not I'd get the licensing for it and start here. And uh, it, 
all all signs were good, so we've uh, started doing it. So there must be a lot to it if you have to apply for licensing and, and get different yeah. different things in place. You have to get uh, uh, permission from the HMRC, which we've done. So. And equipment, you must have to invest uh, yeah, in equipment? Yeah, we, we have a, a still, and we've actually ordered one from Arkansas. It'll be here in about two weeks. It's a 30-gallon copper moonshine still, so which you can't wait for. That's not a Balamina accent, now. Where no, are you from no. originally? Uh, I'm from Oregon, uh, west coast of the U.S., just above California. And what brought you to Northern Ireland? You have a lovely young lady right there. Yeah. And were you involved in whiskey making whenever you were stateside? I was uh, a coffee roaster by trade. So, and this was just a, a hobby. So, uh, but uh, now hopefully it's business. <laughs> okay, so tell us a bit about the product. I saw there that it works well with champagne, and so it's not—it's not just to be served straight or on ice. Yeah, you can serve it uh, over ice. Um, you can put it in champagne or prosecco. You can also heat it. It's good. Uh, if you've got a bit of a cold, it, it works very well to clear your uh, clear your throat if necessary. So you went for a whiskey that's completely different to what is on the market at the moment. Yeah, uh, we decided we'd try it. This is a typically American recipe, um, and it's, I hadn't seen it here, and I thought we'd have a go at it, and people really, really like it. Um, we've entered in the Blossna Aaron uh, uh, Irish food thing, and that uh, hopefully hopefully we'll win something. Fingers, <laughs> cro- absolutely. Idea, yeah. Fingers crossed yeah. with that, and no doubt next year you'll be putting it into the Great Taste Awards. Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah. That's our plan, at least. Now, is it a strong whiskey? I, I had a little taste there, and it did taste a little bit strong. Yeah, it's 20% by volume. How does so, that compare to other whiskeys? And so you're looking at, if you if you had a, a mixed drink uh, on the rocks, it would be just a little bit stronger than that. It would be about 20%, and those are about 17 18% for a mixed drink. And you're, you're serving it in a, a kind of a hip flask-type bottle. Yeah, yeah it's, a, uh, it's, just, it's just a standard quarter bottle. And then also the, uh, the mason jar as well, which is a half liter. Well, this is a very... I've never seen anything like this before. It nearly looks like a jar of honey. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mason jar, which you would normally find for canning things. But in the U.S., that's what they usually put moonshine in. Uh, they're cheap and plentiful over there. So I wanted to kind of keep some originality to it. Tell me a little bit about the name Moonshine. So, uh, I mean, that's typically stuff that's illegal, right? It's illicit. Like Pochine? Like Pochine. It's, okay. it's actually very similar to that. And uh, um, it's generally in the U.S. made from corn. Here it'd be made from sugar or potatoes or something like that or fruits. But most of it in the U.S. is corn-based. So, and we'll be, we'll be doing some of that by the end of the year. Uh, making a straight uh, corn whiskey, and uh, that'll be about 65% by volume. Okay. So much stronger. Fantastic. Well, you must keep us posted about that. Thank you very much. In the meantime, good luck with the, the Bloss and Aaron Awards and it's newharvestdistillery.com if people yeah. want to find out a bit more. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. Alan, I have a bit of a weakness for sausage rolls, and you have some really unusual flavours. Thank you. I'm um, just like to try something different. Uh, if you give a good basic sausage roll, you can add any sort of combination of flavours to it. Just talk me through the three different flavours you have here today. Uh, I've got pork and black pudding, um, pork and chorizo, and the most popular one is pork, cheddar and caramelised onion. But I also do um, have one where we do pork, mango, chutney and a wee bit of Indian spice as well in it. Um, and at Christmas I usually do a seasonal one which has got uh, cranberry and stuffing. Well, I had the pork, cheddar and caramelised onion and it was absolutely delicious. How did you come up with these ideas? Well, just, you know, they're, they're food combinations at work. So why not just apply it to the likes of sausage rolls? You can apply it to bread as well. If you have a good basic wheat and bread recipe, it's the same sort of thing. You can add these just combinations in it. Have you been baking for many a year? Yeah, um, 20 odd years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've on and off um, trained baker. Um, but it's a catering business we have. But at weekends we get out and do the likes of these food festivals, markets and things with all their goodies. Yeah. And do you enjoy coming to the market yes. to meet the customers and talk with them? Oh yeah, definitely. That's the best part because you're stuck in a unit all week long and it's good to get out, meet a lot of people and a lot of passionate people here in the food as well, you know, and other producers. And it's, yeah, it's good. It definitely is. It makes it worthwhile. 
And you have some lovely quiches there as well. Yeah, uh, again, the quiche is nice. It's coming up with all these nice combinations of flavours. Yeah, once again, if you have a good basic recipe or something, you can adapt it to whatever is sort of on trend with food. You also have 15s, I see, which is a very Northern Irish tray bag. Yeah. A lot of people in the South would never have heard of 15. Yeah. Just explain what it is. Well, a 15, as you say, is just it's a Northern Ireland thing. It traditionally is 15 marshmallows, 15 digestive biscuits, 15 cherries and one tin of condensed milk, all mixed together. Rolled in coconut and then set overnight. And, and then you just slice it up and that's it. And it's delicious with a cup of coffee. It's lovely. (laughs) Thanks a million for talking to me. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break you heard me out and about at the Raceview Mill Market in Brasheen, County Antrim. And earlier in the show, Palace Foods, Colin Greensmith had Christmas cake making tips and Alison Cullen from Focus Ireland provided details about the charities, new jams and chutneys in their Taste of Home range. And you can listen to those interviews again when tonight's show in its entirety goes up in the Best Possible Taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com and they'll be posted there later in the week. Now, in previous shows, you've heard me interviewing the lovely Fiona Uyama. And Fiona invited me to one of her Japanese food classes last year, or maybe it was the year before, but I think it was last year. And some of the dishes I learned to make at it continue to feature regularly on the Noonan dinner menu. So that just shows you how useful the demo was for me. Since first meeting Fiona, I've continued to keep in touch with her and I try to meet up with her whenever we're at the same festivals. And she secretly told me during one such meeting that a cookbook was in the pipeline which came as no surprise to me but I'm delighted to reveal that it will be officially launched this Thursday September the 17th and Fiona is on the phone now to tell us more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Fiona a very exciting night for you this Thursday. That's right Sharon Um, it's the launch of my cookbook so really excited and so happy it's finally here after all this time. So it's called Japanese food made easy. Some people might not think that Japanese food can be made easy, but I can actually testify that it can be made easy, having attended one of your cookery classes a couple of years ago in the Mila Gallery. Yes, thank you very much. And it is, I think a lot of people have a misconception about Japanese food being all about sushi, which, you know, we all love sushi, but there's so much more to it in addition to that. And, you know, somebody once described Japanese food to me as simple and tasty. And that's exactly what it is. It's a really simple way of cooking food and not interfering with their natural flavours. So you actually don't cook Japanese food a lot. You let the natural flavours come out in the food. So, you know, for people who are beginning cooking even, it's a great um, food to choose for to start your cooking journey on, believe it or not. A lot of people might think this is going to require stocking up on a lot of ingredients that you don't typically use every day. Yes, uh, there is an element of that, but not for all my dishes. At the beginning of the book, I did dedicate a, a section to basic Japanese ingredients. Um, for some of the recipes, you know, you would just use ingredients you'd already have at home. But for others, you would need to stock up on some things like soy sauce, mirin, um, you know, panko bread crumbs, tofu and seaweed. But again, um, we're so lucky now that we can, um, first of all, get, you know, locally Irish source seaweed, seafood and fish, but also other Asian-specific products are now available in the bigger supermarkets and health stores. So, you know, they're much more available than they were, let's say, five years ago. And what I found was whenever I bought those few staple ingredients, I did use them repeatedly in various different recipes. Brilliant, exactly. You, you really can. Um, so it's definitely worth, once you invest in them, You cooking Japanese food then is very economical, actually. In terms of the book then, the recipes that are in it, like I make the teriyaki salmon quite a lot. That's right, yes. That's one of everyone's favourites. It um, is, and it's so easy to make, so it is. That's right. Um, I suppose it's the sweetness of the sauce everyone loves. But in the book, it was really... Um, Japanese traditional food fused with the fact that, you know, I live here in Ireland and I I like to use locally sourced ingredients. 
um, but also some of my family favourite dishes and dishes that I could attempt after coming in from a hard day's work and kind of bustle up in 30 minutes or so. So they're very practical dishes, dishes that we have, you know, been using for years at home. So I'm hoping people will find that quite helpful when, you know, they start using the recipes from the book, that they are very time and budget friendly. Listeners will probably be saying, how does this lady know so much about Japanese cuisine? And you've spent quite a lot of time in Japan. That's right. So I spent three years in Japan and, you know, I suppose at the time I didn't realise how much I was learning. I um, spent three months with a homestay family. And so that was quite a learning experience at the time. I was a student and um, I used to sit in the kitchen a lot looking at my Japanese homestay mother cooking. And at the time I was learning without realising it. Um, But even I moved on then to a a country village um, in Japan. And again, the neighbours taught me so much and they would always give me their local rice and local um, vegetables. So I really got involved in Japanese cooking. And then when I came back to Ireland, really missed it. And so started then after not cooking it for a while in my kitchen, really went back into cooking it and just felt so much better cooking Japanese food. Um, when I was back in Ireland and I suppose that's how this has really grown to what it has um, it was really me then taking it to another level and starting a blog and then from my blog starting cooking classes which you were at Sharon in the Miele Gallery and from that then the book came about which has just been fantastic You also did very well in the Easy Food magazine Home Cook Hero competition a couple of years ago. So that has been part of your journey as well and probably helped to raise your profile a lot. Absolutely. And Easy Food have always been so good to me. Um, I mean, yeah, I did a recipe. um, I entered a recipe. It was a a Swiss roll with an Asian twist using an unusual ingredient. And the judges just loved it, I suppose, that it was just so unique in one way. And it was great to be a winner of that. It certainly gave me, um, it raised my profile in some respects because the recipe was featured in Paris Court Five Star Hotel, which was a lovely thing to get. Um, So, yeah, that was a fantastic thing and it definitely helped with the journey. You have quite a lot on now between now and Christmas and festivals is is one of the places that people will see you quite a lot and our paths often cross at festivals. You're going to Silver Kilkenny this year but you're not just doing a demo this year, you're doing a pop-up. That's right, so I said I'd stretch it further this year Sharon and um, I'm teaming up with Dublin Pop-Up two chefs called Harry and Cohen and we're doing a Taste of Japan pop-up event and it's really an exclusive dining event where we're um, picking the menu using locally sourced Irish ingredients and fusing that with Japanese flavours. So um, we're also going to have Japanese entertainment there. Um, We're using O'Hara's craft beer. They have a Japanese-inspired craft beer called Sirachi Ace. So we're going to have that as it as well. So it'll be everything with Japanese inspiration. It'll be quite a unique event. Um, So I'm really excited about it. The first one that I've ever done. So it's going to be a real learning curve for me. And I imagine you're going to be busy with lots of book signings. That's right. We're um, so busy in September and October. But that's always a, a good complaint. We're going around. Um, I'll be doing, uh, well, we have the Arnett, uh one on this Thursday. So, you know, anybody can pop into that. And then on the Friday, I'm going to be in Barker and Jones in Nace. That's my local bookstore. And uh, Saturday, then we are in Easton's and uh, Sunday Easton's on O'Connell Street and Sunday Easton's in Liffey Valley. Um, but I'm actually out in Kildare Village a bit in the coming months as well, doing some events with them. So that's really exciting. And Avoca, I'll be doing some demos with Avoca between now and Christmas. So there's lots of things going on, so a really exciting time. The book itself then, it, it looks like you probably had a lovely team of people to work with. Did you have a food stylist and a photographer and, and whatnot? Exactly. Such a wonderful team and it was great. We just all got on so well and worked so well together. And the great thing about it was they just completely understood my vision. Like when I decided I was writing this book, I wanted it to have a modern contemporary twist because that's how I kind of saw my food. I didn't want to have a very traditional looking Japanese book because they'd probably been written before and this was a bit different. And Orlin Elegan is 
um, the food stylist for my book and Rob from A Fox in the Kitchen is a photographer and the commissioning editor was Sarah Liddy and just the whole team came together and I'm just absolutely mad about the photography and styling in the book. They just captivated everything, what the cooking is about. Now you say you're mad about that, but some people will say you were mad yourself, Fiona, because you were pregnant when you were writing this book and then it was finished and you had a small baby who's only, he's what, Matthew's what, eight months now? That's right. I mean, so I hope people realise in half of the photographs I'm pregnant (laughs) and then in the other half um, I'm actually holding Matthew, you know, so I wanted to include him in the book because Scott, my four-year-old, was in the book already, so I didn't want to leave him out. But yeah, I was working a lot on the book and had most of it done before Matthew was born. But um, we we just did one photo shoot and some editing then after Matthew came along. So it was quite the journey. And I always said to my friends, you know, Matthew was born in January, that there was going to be two babies born, you know, in 2015, Matthew and the book. Because that's what it really felt like. It was such a journey, you know, over a year working on this. Well, and what a journey it has been. It's, you know, it has been so interesting following you over the past couple of years. I'm just delighted for you. So I wish you all the best at the book signing and the launch on Thursday. I'll obviously be keeping an eye out for you at future events. And if people want to find out more, where's the best place for them to go? They can go to my website. It's fionauyema.com and um, my surname is U-Y-E-M-A. Because so they can just contact see all my details on that. Because we should point out that Gilmar, your husband, he is Brazilian, born of Japanese parents. Is that right? Yeah, Gilmar, yeah, was born in Brazil, but both his grandparents are from Japan. So okay. it's a Japanese surname. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Perfect. Listen, it's a fabulous book. All the best with it, Fiona, and lovely to talk to you as always. And thanks very much for having me on, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Lovely as always to talk to Fiona and best of luck to her with her new book. Keep an eye out for that now because it will be a good one to buy. I'm looking forward to picking up a copy at the launch on Thursday night. Now, before we finish up, I want to appeal for your votes in the upcoming Blog Awards. Aoife Ryan, a.k.a. Baba Duck, who has been on the show here, has been shortlisted in the food and drink category. And an old school pals blog, 746 Books, has also been shortlisted. And that's in the arts and culture section. So if you could pop onto their blogs or visit blogawardsireland.com and cast them your vote, it would be much appreciated. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks for joining me and thanks to all of tonight's guests, Colin Greensmith, Alison Cullen, Fiona Uyama and everyone at the market at Raceview Mill in Brasheen County Antrim. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. I'll be back at the same time next week and nutritionist chef Sid Sheehan will be here to talk about diet and allergies and food intolerances and all of that. And of course, I'll have lots of other interesting guests joining me. So until then, have a fabulous week and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!